Most of you have probably seen a bumper sticker that says, Jesus saves. You can imagine such a bumper sticker, Jesus saves. If not, maybe you've seen the iconic Los Angeles neon sign that says, Jesus saves. We get the point. It's quite a slogan. It gets to the point. Jesus saves. But what would you think if today, after the service, we had men and women passing out to you as you leave to go to your car, bumper stickers that say, Moses saves. What would you think if we said, we're going to have a new sign outside. We're going to have what hope, what we hope to be an iconic sign outside of Omaha Bible Church, and it will flash and say, Moses saves. Well, I hope you would all litter on your way home and save your time and never come back to Omaha Bible Church, is what I hope would happen. It's not a good idea. It's not something we would want to do. Why? Because Acts 4.12 says that there's salvation in no other name. And it's talking about the name of Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus saves. Moses doesn't save. So you might be thinking, so Pat, why are you stirring the pot? Why, why, why are you even bringing this up today, being provocative? Well, it's what I like to do. I like to provoke. But I, I want you to think with me. I want you to think about Moses in the book of Exodus because he's called a savior. In chapter 2, he definitely saves. Uh, in the book of Exodus, there's definitely redemption going on. And it's not Jesus, the Redeemer. Uh, not only that, we also see in the book of Exodus salvation happening through Moses, the mediator. Why would I be bringing this up? I want to bring it up so that we read our Bibles better. I want to bring it up. I want us to study the book of Exodus so we read our Bibles better as Christians so that we might know that by divine design, God had Moses to be a, let's call him a lowercase s savior. He is a lowercase m mediator. He represents the people. He, by God's grace, God uses him to lead Israel to be saved. Saved from Pharaoh. Saved from Egyptian slavery and oppression. Not ultimate salvation, like we need to be saved from our sin. But saved in a temporary sense. God did all of this on purpose. God did all of this on purpose so that we would better understand redemption, so we would better understand salvation, so we'd better understand Jesus, because Jesus alone ultimately saves. But history is written in such a way, biblical history is written in such a way, so that we'd be looking forward, so that we would even listen to Moses, who said, one will come after me. Listen, who's like me, listen to him. And the Apostle Peter quotes that very text and he quotes it in reference to Jesus. So we are studying the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there if you haven't already turned there. But we're not studying the book of Exodus just to do a bunch of character studies. It's not really the point. Moses is not the best character in the whole world. Okay? Moses is significant. Moses is a mediator. Moses is a savior, but he's not the end game. 
It was always by divine design so that we would look forward so we won't get there today, but to get to the Passover so that we might eventually see the significance of the ultimate Passover lamb who is none other than Jesus. And so it's a fascinating study, but it's not to be an end in and of itself. And I would hope that we'll be better Bible readers, Bible interpreters, if we can figure this very thing out. It's what we want to do. So Exodus means, guess what? There's a flash, there's a sign right there. It's not flashing. It says exit. Okay. So it means to leave. It means to go out. It means to exit. So what's happening in the book of Exodus? The people of God have been enslaved for some 400 years and oppressed in Egypt and they want to be free. They want to be, let's use words we're familiar with even in the New Testament, they want to be redeemed. They want to be let go. They want to experience freedom, not oppression. They need to be, in other words, they need to be saved as in delivered. And they're longing for that to happen. And we are expected to understand this by New Testament authors. By the time we get to the New Testament, the New Testament authors are expecting us to get this. Okay, that's why I'm preaching through Exodus as a orator. I don't count myself as much of an orator, but as a, as a public speaker, as an orator, as somebody who really wants to, to preach great sermons, they call it homiletics. So as a homiletician, I wouldn't have us study the 40 chapters of Exodus because it's, as commentators tell us, it's hard to teach. It's long. It's repetitive. It's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. So I would never choose it. But as a pastor, I'm compelled. Because I, I want you to be better Bible readers. I want you to be better Bible readers so that you can see that this is all on purpose. So that you can see Jesus as maybe better than you even knew. That you can see God in his sovereignty orchestrating human history in a way that is even more profound than you realized. It's all by divine design. So that is my pastoral burden. I hope it's what happens. Today I have studied, ready notes to go chapters 5 to 10. Should we, should we place bets? <laughs> so we probably won't get there. But where, where we're going today is we're going to start working our way through the plagues. And, and we're, we're gonna, we won't get there today, but we're, where we're going soon would be to the Passover to connect some major dots. But on our way today, chapters 5 through 10-ish, and if you're just joining us, you'll get caught right up. Don't worry about it. Uh, but 5 through 10-ish, be looking for some major themes. Be noticing the sovereignty of God, that God is in charge and he's in control of all things to the point where it might even make you uncomfortable. Uh, but not only is God sovereign, God who is sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing as the king is for his people. Okay, he's, he's sworn under covenant oath that he will take care of them and love them and deliver them. But also notice that as we look at God's sovereignty, he doesn't do these things. He doesn't keep his promises according to the time frame that a lot of his people wanted to be in. You see, there's already lessons for us to learn. History's going somewhere. It's going toward redemption. This is temporary redemption so that we can understand ultimate redemption. And you'll see the redemption theme as well. Well, I'd better stop lest we only get past verse 1. 
Hope you're ready. Hope you found Exodus by now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the one true and living God. In chapter 3, we learned about who this Lord is. He's the one who said, My name? My name is not the fire God. My name is not the sun God. My name is not the moon God. My name is not the... All these gods have names because of what they do. No, you know what? My name is I am. I'm the self-existent God. I'm the one who elsewhere we're going to see today is called the almighty God. I'm the God that doesn't depend upon anything or anyone. I'm just the one who is. That's my name. It's, it's, it's profound. It's without reference. You can't say, oh, then he's like this other. No, he's just the God, the self-existent one. The one eternal, all-powerful creator God, the God of absolute existence, existence without limitation, absolutely independent, the one who's like no other. That's from chapter 3 last week. Okay, we better keep going. Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, and it doesn't say it this way in the translation I'm using. But since we saw, thus saith the Lord. Now Pharaoh's going to say, thus saith Pharaoh. Which is a really dumb idea. Right? But the king of Egypt said, who sees himself as a God and the people would have seen him as a God. Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many. I'm just going to put my finger there just for one quick moment. In chapters one to four, we learned that they're becoming a threat, right? So he's killing the boys, killing the babies, because he doesn't want there to become too many of them. So it's part of the oppression, part of the murderous system. So it's hearkening back to that in case you weren't here last week. Now many that you may, that you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, again, dumb contrast, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And we're asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then verse 15 says, then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, 
Why do you treat your servants like this? No straws given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Get this, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then 22, and Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I hope you maybe caught on there at the end why I was trying to emphasize some things. What happens? Well, obviously what happens earlier is oppression, worse oppression, anything but deliverance. It's awful. It's bad. It's evil. It's wicked. It's unjust. It's not right. And then what happens? The people blame Moses and Aaron like we do. I want to do a whole sermon sometime on the theology of blaming <laughs> and victim culture. <laughs> you have made us to stink in the sight of Pharaoh. So the problem is Moses and Aaron, first blame action, but keep going, right? In verse 22, who does Moses blame? Moses just blames God. You've caused this to happen. Like we do, the theology of blaming. The Lord promised deliverance. Most certainly he promised deliverance. We heard about it in the opening chapters. We're going to hear about it today. The Lord promised that they would be delivered. Do you think they're going to be delivered? Most certainly, absolutely, based upon his promises to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, which keeps coming up again and again, it absolutely is going to happen. But it's not... So there... And if God is... I am... It is going to happen. But it hasn't happened when they want it to happen. And so they're blaming the leaders and then they're just blaming God, which is not a good look. I hope we're going to catch on to some of that kind of stuff. We will see later. I won't emphasize it now, but this is why the New Testament even says we should, this is, this kind of stuff was written for us, that we wouldn't be grumblers and complainers. We'll do that another day though. Okay. Now we made it through one chapter. Awesome. Now let's go this to chapter six. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the, out of his land. So it was let my people go. He will do that. But you know what? He's going to let them go in a way that he really, really wants to get them out. That's what's going to happen. There's the preview. He won't only let them go. He will drive them out. Verse 2 says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, 
I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Which sounds strange, and it probably sounds strange because if you have a study Bible or something in the marginal notes, it will say something along the lines of this last statement in verse 3 would be better formulated as a question. Like, my name is Yahweh, I am the Lord. Did I not make myself known to them? And the reason commentators and people make that notation is because he did. Uh, When you read Genesis, it's not like God didn't reveal himself as Yahweh. He most certainly, absolutely, again and again, does this. And so most commentators think this should actually be formulated in the form of a question. Uh, Original manuscripts don't have question marks and punctuation like we would have. And so it's probably the form of a question. I, I made my promise known. Most certainly I did. And this would actually fit what verse 4 says also. I also, not only did I do that, I did make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So God covenanted, God swore, God formally bound himself to do this. He vowed to do this is the idea. Verse 5 says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will save you. I will exit you, right? I will exodus you. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver. I will save you. I will set you free. I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you. There's that redemption theme. With an outstretched arm, with a generous arm, when you're reaching out to help someone who's in need, with an outstretched arm, gracious, and with great acts of judgment on the opponents. Then verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And verse 7 is is wonderful talk, because it's affectionate talk. And because it's, it's, it's covenantal talk. It's the way God speaks because he's formally bound. Okay? I will be your God and you will be my people. And different versions or, or, or exactly like this or in similar ways, we see this throughout the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. So again, it's, it's this covenantal, uh, binding, uh, so he's gonna say, I swore, so you swear when you take an oath. So if the God who is the all-powerful, unrivaled, like no other God, swears, you will be my people and I will be your God, what do you think is gonna happen? It's how it's gonna be. It's how it's gonna be. Sort of like wedding vows even. Sometimes they say things like, to be your lawfully wedded husband. And we take oaths. To be your lawfully wedded wife. I promise, I swear, really is what we're saying, in vows. Well, God has covenanted with his people, and you will be my people, and I will be your God, and nothing can stop that from happening. So your timing, the timing you might not be happy with, but it is how it's going to be. You can trust me, in other words. 
And this is going to come up later referring to even Christians in the New Testament. He speaks the same way of Christians. Which is one reason why I think, and we might end with that in a little while, which is one reason why I think it's so important to know Exodus, verbiage, feel, tenor, storyline, because by the time we get to the New Testament, it's expecting us to know this kind of verbiage. It's expecting us to know that when he uses that kind of language, we should be learning of how God dealt with his people even during Egyptian oppression to understand even the oppression we're in today, even though it's not Egyptian oppression. Okay, then it says further on in verse 7, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. See, because he's bound himself to them. Your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore. See, covenant talk. I oathed, I vowed, I swore to give to Abraham. When I preached one chapter in the book of Hebrews, I entitled it because I like being provocative. The God who swears. Not in the bad sense, but in the right sense. We need a God like that. They have a God like that. That I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Again, connecting the dots. If he is some fire God, water God, earthquake God, or whatever kind of God, then you might not be able to trust him. But if he is the self-existent one who's above all and almighty, and he says, you're my people, and I'm your God, and I swear this is going to happen... We go, oh, that's why theology matters so much. That's why we actually love to study the doctrine of God so much because we need to know if he's actually, if he could do it or not. So we're seeing the, the practicality of knowing who he is, chapter three, and now that means he, you can, you can count on him. Okay, verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So I, I can't believe this because of the way I feel and because of my circumstances, which I think is worth noting. Because as outsiders, we all say, are they in the right or in the wrong? As outsiders, we say, they're, 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 they're in the wrong. What is wrong with these people? But sometimes we speak in the same terms. Well, I can't really believe the promises of God because of the way I feel and these folks would have felt pretty bad. And because of my current circumstances. The intent of the text would be, it would be right to trust God because of who he is, no matter what. Even if it doesn't match your timing. And that's significant. So the Lord said to Moses in verse 10, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. But then, how, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. I have unholy lips. I, I'm, I'm obviously a bad talker, or this would have worked by now, I think is the idea. Verse 13 says, But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Have you noticed it's kind of redundant? Yeah. It's just hammering it home. And guess what? There's a lot more. There's a whole lot more. But... 
since you might need a break right about now, we have a genealogy. (laughs) So now the reason the genealogy is here is not to see if your pastor is good at pronouncing ancient names because he's not that good at it. Um, It's actually going to tie in Moses and Aaron and show where they fit in, why they matter, their their lineage, if you will. But I also also like to remind you, and I remind myself of this all the time when I have to read a genealogy and think, why am I reading this? I hope it's always a reminder to us that we're not talking about fiction. We're not talking about fairy tales and fantasy. There's a genealogy because Moses is a real person and Aaron's a real person. And that's pretty important because it sets the stage for Jesus is a real person. And that's pretty important because we're real people and we need a real savior. And so it makes me warm up to genealogies a little bit. Verse 14 says, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu. Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kahath, and Marari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Korhath being 133 years, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Iskar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, El, Elzaphan, and Sitri. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, and, the, excuse me, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nation, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eliezer, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Pituel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they, these ones that we just learned about, who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Not mythological figures. Here's who they are. Here's how they got to this place. Okay, let's move on now that we've had that introduction or that intermission. Okay, verse 28, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, like we just heard. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now we come to chapter 7. 
And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts. It's, it's emphasizing like military might and forcefulness. My people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So there will be the bringing out redemption and it's going to happen through judging enemies. Quick question. Why harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, it's going to keep coming up. So I just want to push pause on that and get you to think about it. Why would it say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart? And there are some answers in the text, and there are some important things about that very matter of God's sovereignty. But for now, why would he do that? But before we move on, I'll give you at least one thing to think about as you're thinking about the answer, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Sometimes that same word is used in other texts, and it's used in a positive way. I don't think this is positive. Don't get me wrong. But it means resolve. It means determined. And so some people are resolved in their heart to do something good. Other people are resolved in their heart to do something bad. So you could neutrally translate it, and God resolved his heart. We already know he wants to do bad things, and God made him all the more committed to doing the bad things he's already wanted to do. So just be thinking about this. And you could check with Old Testament scholars like T. Desmond Alexander that that is how the word is used. So that at least gets us thinking about it. But it's an important matter when it comes to the sovereignty of God. Verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There's one reason for hardening the heart, by the way. That they may know that I am the Lord, the, the, the Almighty, the one true and living God, in other words. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that I may become a serpent, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And now we come to the plagues, a whole series of plagues. And then eventually we get to the Passover, which is kind of what we're all waiting for. But we're not going to get there anytime real soon. They're called plagues, probably by us because of the way English was used like in the 16th century. They're not all plagues. 
Um, Jewish tradition has them, and actually you could translate the Hebrew word, strikes, blows, okay? Things that cause harm. And some of them are what we today would call plagues, but not all of them are. But they are all blows. They are all strikes, like in fighting. They all do damage. So your Bible might have the headings that says plagues. You might even have a translation like I do that says plagues. It means affliction, damage, harm. And we'll work our way through these. Did you see his heart is still hardened again as well? Oh, had a, a, a brain moment. Couldn't think right. I think it's fascinating. I'm not going to say much about it, but it's fascinating that um, the Egyptian sorcerers do supernatural things. And I think it's fascinating that the author of Exodus doesn't make comment about it. I take it that they did supernatural things. I take it that those who represent God do supernatural things sometimes. And those who represent Satan and his minions do supernatural things sometimes. Maybe one more thing about that, because I know we're not going to make it that far. Now I'm not even trying. (laughs) Even the book of Exodus, when we read Genesis and Exodus, should help us to remember that the extraordinary by the hands of human beings, supernatural activities are not the norm. They've been enslaved for 400 years. Why now? I don't know. According to God's perfect sovereign design. That's why. Why didn't they do this year one? Well, if doing supernatural things by human beings is normal, then they would have done it right away. It's actually not normal. So when we have the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and he's on earth and all of these extraordinary things are happening, guess what? It's not the norm. It's something unique is happening. Something extraordinary is happening that's not the norm. God can do anything anytime he wants to do it. Don't get me wrong. But through the hands of human individuals, it's extraordinary. I think we should remember that. It probably help, helps us to read our Bibles better and to live our Christian lives better as well. Okay, first plague or first assault, first blow, first strike. It says in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you've not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. There's a word that's used for turning red, and it's not that word. It's not that, well, somehow certain rains came, and you know, the 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 soil's kind of like in Oklahoma, and it's kind of red, and so then when it ran, and it just happened to work out that way. 
Well, it actually is not the case. It turned, it says it turned to blood. So guess what I think we should think it means? It turned to blood. Okay, verse 18. <laughs> the fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22 says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. That's where I want to say If they were that powerful, though, why didn't they what? Why didn't they reverse it? I don't know. Inquiring minds want to know. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. So he's not impressed with the positive or the negative guys, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now we move on to the next one. Second plague, second blow, second strike. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. I'm going to put my, eh, I'll end, I'll end with this one. Let's keep moving. I'll come back to that in our conclusion. But I want you to notice the pattern. Let them go so they serve. Let them go so they serve. Mark that in your minds. And remind me to mark it in my mind. <laughs> but if, this is verse 2, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into the, your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Again, I don't know why they didn't get rid of them, but let's keep going. Verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord and take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice. See, it says serve before. Now it says sacrifice. That should be kept in mind. Sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants. This is kind of a mediator kind of thing. And for your people that the frogs be cut off off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God, which is a pretty important, significant statement. Why are these things happening? Well, one major reason is so that everyone will know, so that they will know that their fire gods Frog gods, sun gods, moon gods are nothing like God. 
The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. I'll bet it did. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. Did you notice the difference now? God has been hardening his heart. He's remained with a hard heart. And now it says Pharaoh hardens his heart. It's important. We'll talk about it, but not right now. Shoot, can we do one more plague? Let's do at least one more plague. These are gnats. They could actually be lice, depending on how you want to take the word. Uh, they're, they're pestilence. They're a problem is the idea. They're not pleasant. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, which is also a refrain. As the Lord had said, this is how it's going to end up being. Let's do flies and we'll wrap it up. Thank you for laughing. And some would take these to be mosquitoes because they don't think flies are mean enough, but I don't think they've been around the world to know how bad flies can be. There are flies and there are flies. So, verse 20 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, here it is again, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with the swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Kind of interesting, huh? So... Flies over here, no flies over there. How does that work? Well, if it's a miracle, it works that way. Is how that works. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. And the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offering offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Ever so quickly, what's interesting is they're going to, it seems that they're, they would have to go out of their way. The Israelites, they would have to go out of their way to make sure that the Egyptians understood that they were not doing the same religion. 
They would need to make it clear. It doesn't give us the details, so we're speculating. I'll admit that. But whatever would need to happen, they would need to make it clear that they're doing idiocy. So what we're doing is nothing like what we're doing. And if it looks like it's the same, just so you're aware, just so you're aware, we think you people are lunatics for doing what you're doing. Well, that's a fight ready to happen. That's blasphemous to them and they're going to stone us, he says. So we've got to go out of town to be different. How about verse 28? So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. What's with this guy, right? Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. So remember earlier I said we need to talk about the whole issue of hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we are, go- we are going to do that next week. It's actually really important when it comes to God's sovereignty. So, but we're not done seeing it. It's going to keep happening. So we're going to hold off for next week. What I want to end with today is, I know this is kind of a rude pause and all of that sort of thing, but we have to stop somewhere. We're going to stop here. But I at least want you to notice this as Christians. Let them go. There's a synonym for that. Have them be saved delivered, rescued. He even uses the word redeem or redemption. Let them go out. Let them exit, which is symbolic of salvation. Let them exit. Let them be delivered. I want to say let them be saved so they can serve the Lord. So they can sacrifice to the Lord. And I don't think it's on accident that that image is given to us. Okay? Let's think about in the Christian world. We don't do the serving. We don't do the sacrificing. And then maybe eventually we'll gain redemption. Maybe eventually we'll gain spiritual exodus. We'll gain spiritual deliverance. It is a pattern built in, even in the exodus account. Deliverance, i.e. salvation, i.e. the ultimate exodus, So that we serve, so that we worship, so that we do the right thing because our God is a God who has redeemed us. He has set us free from the slavery. Romans talks about it's slavery to sin is the ultimate slavery. So I hope we're seeing patterns like that if we're being observant because they're there. We just don't always observe them, but they're worth us seeing how things work. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, Christians say, in Christ alone ultimately. And then we want to do the right thing because we've been delivered. We want to do the right thing out of gratitude. Well, we're not just making that up without a built-in pattern of observation. We actually see it in the text in the book of Exodus. Final thing. Did I say that was the final thing? I probably did. 
We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for history. Thank you for those who've gone before us. Thank you for these patterns that we find in the Bible. We know that we're meant to see them because we have the New Testament that shows us this so many times. And we're thankful to know that it's not just true of Israel in the Old Testament that they're called your people and you are their God. We're thankful that this is throughout the whole Bible. We're thankful to know that you are our God and we are your people, that we belong to you and we are in a special, unique, covenantal relationship with you and we're thankful to know this to be true and we're thankful to know that you don't make promises as an inept, weak, fable kind of God, but that you are none other than the God Almighty, the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, who sent your son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to make atonement for our sins, to bring reconciliation so that we might come to know you and so that we might have an ultimate exodus. And we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.